From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. He's on Snapchat and uses his phone a lot. How can we create boundaries without him missing out on contact with his friends from every parent of teenagers in Ireland? (laughs) (laughs) I need a special needs unit or I need a special school for Alfie to attend and the places just aren't there. He led Ireland for you know, a long, long time. And we were proud to have him there and it'll be, it'll be big shoes to fill. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, 100 years of the House of Mouse, the 12 year old who doesn't have a school place and that crushing defeat to New Zealand. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's no expert on rugby, but is going to give you its detailed opinion anyway. On this morning's nine o'clock show, Oliver Callan began his musings on the events of the weekend. Where else but in France? We're not feeling too low about uh, the rugby disaster in Paris. Is that the best way to put it? Because sport is the place that we go to hide when the news from reality is as bad as it is now. And uh, for the last six weeks, the rugby lads have provided the most promising dream of them all. And so many people watching rugby, I'd say a lot of them for the first time ever, on Saturday night and I'm, I'm uh, interested to see the figures when they come from Virgin Media later this afternoon. A, a million and a half I would imagine at least. Uh, it's certainly the most watched thing this year. Um, first time, it, it was probably the biggest, definitely. We invested so much hope in it, to be fair, and uh, I think that's why there was such a sense of emptiness when it all just faded out yet again at the quarterfinal stage. So we're left with the, it's a version of sadness, isn't it? It's sports sadness because there are worse things in the world. Uh, the instant retirement of Johnny Sexton in tears underlined it and there's a lot of pictures of him um, with his sad face in all the, the press across the place today. It was hard to watch. Then you had the retirement of Keith Earls adding another layer of ending. A very Keith Earls way to go, kind of saying, no, everyone's going to be talking about Johnny so I'll just slip quietly away. He doesn't like the limelight. And I see here in the back of the Irish Daily Mail this morning that Peter O'Mahony uh, is tipped to follow Sexton at Earls out as the end of the world is the end of an Irish era is the rather dramatic headline there. So it was it was meant to be our greatest ever go and instead somehow it just went the way of previous exits. It's, it's hard to imagine. We're used to Ireland being underdogs and sort of fizzling out and we say they put on a brave face they were unlucky to lose uh, but it's rare we're um, the, the, the favourites and expected to go all the way joint favourites with France uh, both of us joint favourites Saturday morning both out of the World Cup this morning and arguably a bigger uh, a better match South Africa-France last night out by a point and I think the Rugby World Cup is going to suffer from the lack of the home side there but uh, I'll be rooting for South Africa, I think, at this stage. Uh, back-to-back Rugby World Cups, that's a huge thing. England, having played badly, just to really rub it into us, are somehow in the semi-final. Poor old Fiji gave it quite a go. And it was a real pity for us because it was an old-fashioned style rugby match. Different to the rugby that befuddles the less committed because, uh, well, it was easy to follow, wasn't it? It was just uh, brute force, constantly in action. And it was kind of breathtaking, particularly the... 37 passage phases at the end there. But anyway, it unfortunately it turns out the All Blacks relish being the underdogs and uh, the All Greens are terrified of quarterfinals and that's going to be, uh, we're going to be terrified forever of Rugby World Cup semi-finals. It's a night that's going to haunt Irish rugby leaders for years because it has risen the sport hugely in the last 15 years, maybe more, uh, but a semi-final would have brought it to a whole new level and it should have been the time for that but unfortunately it wasn't. Uh, Jerry Thornley in the Irish Times, I want to quote 
some good lines uh, from, from the sports pages. So much joy along the way in an unprecedented Irish sequence of 17 wins in a row. Yet ultimately, the same old quarterfinal laments, which only made this one feel the worst of all. Brendan Fanning in the Sunday Independent had the best line, I feel, of the weekend. This was the equivalent of a power cut when the party was in full swing. Doesn't that seem so true? Because we were flying, we were flying. Everyone was over there in Paris, a lot of fellas um, preparing for next weekend. Uh, but the power cut came, unfortunately. And the lights, sadly, have been out for some time um, for the football boys in green. 2-0 loss to Greece Friday night, Lansdowne Road. And familiar headlines all around the place of another manager's head on the block. And that echoes the, the the awful ending for women for the women's team after a wonderful year they had getting to the World Cup. But we only remember the bad stuff. But um, we should be more patient for Irish football because, after all, they are trying to recover from the previous old years of mismanagement and disgrace uh, in the FAI. Time is needed there, and sure, and nothing stays the same for very long. Sadly, the tradition in soccer is to sack all before you, and that's why Stephen Kenny is, is looking glum in the papers as well. Oliver summing up a long weekend for Irish sports fans. On another note, the actor Michael Caine announced his retirement, again, recently, and Oliver paid his own little tribute to the man forever associated with driving minis really fast, even though he can't actually drive. Not a lot of people know that. Sorry. Michael Caine is a fellow who's brought great joy to everyone over the years and he has announced and confirmed his retirement. He has announced, I'm reading The Guardian this morning, his retirement several times over the last few years. 2009, he said, Harry Brown, that's it, I'm done. Best sellers, 2021, he said he was going to be gone. Then a year ago, he says he's going to play Charles Darwin in a film which was going to be made in a couple of years' time. But no, he went on BBC the other day, confirmed that after winning uh, two Oscars, which were for Hannah and his sister's, and her sisters never saw it, uh, but it got very high uh, reviews around the place all over the weekend when he announced retirement. And the Cider House Rules, which I think most of us would have seen, and uh, he got his two Oscars there. And he's best known in recent years for his collaborations with Christopher Nolan in uh, all the Batman movies: Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises. He was also in Interstellar. He was in The Prestige, all those Christopher Nolan films. But he's best known, I think, for Zulu, for The Italian Job, uh, for The Great Escape. And The Great Escaper is now going to be his final, final movie. And in true Michael Caine style, he just has a really authentic kind of feel around him, doesn't he? His accent stayed the same as since he was a kid. He's talking about his retirement and why he's retiring at the tender age of 90. I'm still grabbing every second, although I'm 90, but I keep saying I'm going to retire. Yeah, well, I, I, I am now because I figured I've had a picture which is I've played the lead. The only parts I'm liable to get now are old men, 90-year-old men, or maybe 85, you know. Well, I might as well leave with all this. I've got wonderful reviews. What am I going to do to beat this? Nothing to beat that, Michael Caine. What a, a very dignified, very dignified ending. And when he puts out there, very few people get to leave like that, don't they, on a high going, I'm 90, I've got all the great reviews. And because he's retiring, uh, The Great Escaper, which is uh, a movie, uh, he stars along Glenda Jackson, who completed filming uh, months just before her death this year. And he plays a fiction role of a former RAF pilot. Um, and he befriends this woman on, on a ferry. And uh, because it's his final role, and because of the love for Michael Caine, they are talking about perhaps a little bit of a, a, a nod in the Oscars and in the BAFTAs and all of that to say farewell. Michael Caine's alleged retirement lovingly covered for us by Oliver Callan. Finally, for the musings this time, Oliver risks the wrath of Swifties everywhere. 
Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey are out and about in New York City. They're young love. Whether you hate it, you cannot escape it uh, because Taylor Swift is just everywhere. And they appeared um, separately on SNL, left together, and they're in parties. And they've been teasing people for the last couple of weeks by going to NFL. She goes to NFL matches because he's an NFL player. And his jersey's been selling out because the Swift fans are incorrigible people who are just, uh, just love the materialism, swallow up all the merch. Uh, so she's out celebrating because Taylor Swift, the Ayers tour, which is still going on and for going on for another year, it is also released as a film. Why you'd want to see the concert movie before you've seen the concert, I don't know. But in America anyway, it, it raked in close to $96 million at the box office across the US and Canada, uh, making it the highest grossing concert film for an opening weekend ever. So she's breaking all the records and she's going to have the first $1 billion grossing concert ever. Why? Because she's charging way too much. Even cinema tickets, and they're expensive in America, are in at around $15. And she is charged $19.89 because she was born in 1989. There's no end to the the savage capitalism of Taylor Swift, said no Taylor Swift fan ever. But there you go. Oliver, you need to calm down or there could be bad blood between you and about a bajillion Taylor Swift fans. And I'm not sure you'd be ready for it. And if they come for you, you're on your own, kid. Okay, let's leave the musings from this morning's nine o'clock show there, shall we? I think it's for the best. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, we heard that Minister Eamon Ryan has clashed with Dublin Port, accusing them of prioritising land for cars over homes. Claire Byrne spoke to the Irish Independent's Caroline O'Doherty about the clash. Will you start by telling us about the site, the land at the heart of the row? So it's a large site. Um, It's quite close to the Three Arena in Dublin, if people are familiar with going up there for concerts. Um, It's near where the M50, just before the M50 becomes, goes underground and becomes a port tunnel. So if you like, it's on the opposite side. It's it's across the M50 from the main Dublin port lands. And it was specially developed in two, between 2012, 2014 particularly to store newly imported cars. So all these cars come off the ships um, from abroad. They go over this specially built flyover, private flyover, over the M50, down on the other side, and they go into this big surface compound of about 10 acres. And from there, uh, typically it can store about 2,500 cars at a time. Typically they'll spend a few days there until all the paperwork is sorted and until the transporters come and bring them to garages and sales rooms around the country. So it's a 10 acre site on prime land, really very close to the city centre. So Eamon Ryan then expressed his criticism of this uh, facility. Yes, um, earlier this year, the Land Development Agency, which is tasked with finding state-owned lands that could potentially be used for housing, uh, because the Dublin Port Company is a state-owned commercial company, um, and it identified three sites around Dublin Port, and this was the largest of them. So uh, Eamon Ryan is saying, look, we have a housing crisis, uh, and he's also Minister for Transport and he's been trying to get the message across that we give too much, we prioritise cars, we give too much over to cars. So for those two reasons, now we have a housing crisis, we have a prime site there, we need to stop prioritising cars over everything. We really need to get that site in use, cleared of cars, used for housing. So he, he mentioned this earlier this year, but he got into it in more detail in recent days and he had a meeting with Dublin Port um, officials in recent days and raised this issue again. The Dublin Port have come back and said, no way, essentially. Uh, they put the money into it, they developed the facility. They say they're bringing in, um, they expect to bring in about 110,000 new cars this year from abroad. Obviously, we don't manufacture cars in Ireland, so they all come on the ships from abroad. And um, 
so it has to it has to have room for that level of business. It's also using the EV side of things. Like we are helping the environment by bringing in EVs. Now EVs are still not. We're still bringing in more, uh, you know, fossil fuel vehicles than we are EVs. So you can argue that one. But they're basically saying hands off. You're not getting our side. Mm-hmm. Then do they need the whole ten acres at any one time? Because I know they're bringing in a lot of cars. The numbers are huge, but they're not co- all coming in on the same day. Well, they, they would come in pretty regularly. Um, you know, there's some areas shots you can do in Google Earth and it does show that pretty much every parking space is filled. So as, as you know, cars come in, others go out. And the problem, I suppose, is that it's all surface car parking. So it's like it's not multi-storey. So arguably, if you were to build a sort of six-storey car park on that site, you would use, you know, maybe a fifth off the site. But these are all just surface car parking. So it's very spread out. So it is, it isn't, I suppose, even in, when you think of other city centre car parks, they're all multi-storey. So you have far more cars on a far smaller footprint. These are all just, you know, single-storey flat surface car parking. So arguably... They could use less of it, but that would be more investment. They'd have to build a multi-storey. So um, I'm not sure if the discussions are going to lead down that direction long term, but certainly for the moment, they're showing no signs of giving it up. Okay. now you also have a report today, Caroline, about data centres who are being told that their power will be cut if they don't use generators during peak demand. What's happening there? Well, this time of year, every year, Airgrid have to look ahead to the winter months and say, how are we going to deal with the inevitable rise in electricity demand? And in recent years, we have come very close to what they're called amber alerts, which say that look at all the generation capacity in the country, all the generating plants, everything that they're putting out there, we're pretty much using it. So things are really tight. And if there was a sudden extra surge in electricity, we could end up with power cuts. So they have to plan for this every year. So in the most recent statement, they've really clamped down on this. Um, data centres, we know, are using huge amounts of our electricity, about 18%, and that's going up. So they have had these kind of agreements in the past whereby they call them very large energy users and say, well, look, at, uh, could you stop using some electricity or, or you know, plan some downtime if we get very tight? And there are quite a few large energy users are tied into this, and they kind of get a standby payment you know, for this. What they've done in recent months is they've kind of ramped that up and, and firmed up that agreement, and they're saying... They have about 20 or 30 very large energy users. They said they're mainly data centres and they've come to this agreement by by which if they're called upon, they'll get an hour to to shut it down, shut down their operations or switch to their own generating capacity. And here's the clincher. If they don't do it, we can switch you off anyway because we we need that power for the general public, for general smaller businesses, for essential services. So they say they don't expect to have to call on that, but I suppose it it goes some way to maybe easing the public mind um, and that you know, maybe addressing that issue that we're all aware of now that data centres really are coming. Well, we'll see whether it happens or whether it's needed over the winter. Claire Byrne talking to the Irish Independence Caroline O'Doherty about Eamon Ryan versus Dublin Port this morning. On this afternoon's Live Line, Katie Hannan spoke to Cora about her son Alfie, who should have started secondary school this year, but hasn't been able to get a place in a school as of yet. Alfie has Down syndrome. So this is like, we're now into, what, the 16th of October. So yeah. like my girls started secondary school this year. So they, they're well settled into their term now. They're, what, six or seven weeks in. Yeah. What is the story? I mean, when, when did you realise that there might be an issue getting a place for Alfie? Uh, well, I, I realised last January when I started applying for different schools in the area. Alfie needs a, a more specialised setting, you know, he's not really able for mainstream. So the point of it, I need a special needs unit or I need a special school for Alfie to attend and the places just aren't there. 
And how long, have you say, you started looking last January? January, yeah. And what are you being told, like, when you, when you, when you apply? Um, pretty much, like, for, for instance, in, I live in a Thai, so the area I'd be dealing with would be Carlow, County Leash and County Kildare. So, like, one of the local schools here in Carlow had 150 applications and there were seven places. So this is the kind of numbers oh we're dealing God. with. And Port Leash was the same and Kildare is the same. And it's, it's been this way for quite a while now. So there must be other Alfies out there if, if well, there's that many applications for so few places. Oh, absolutely. And this is why I've come on the radio. I need to, you know, get a hold of other families and I'm going to leave my details with your researcher. And we need to get together on this and come together as a group because there's hundreds of families out here. Tell me, so what, what is Alfie doing day in, day out now? What's his day like? Well, his day is, well, he's very relaxed about the whole thing, of course. <laughs> I'm the one that's panicking. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, um, like his, he's out of school, you know, he's away from his peers. He's not mixing with people, you know, kids his own age. It's, it's going to have an effect right across the board for him. And I want him to reach his full potential and he needs to be in a school setting. But how are you managing then with him? You, you're a single mom, are you, Cora? I'm a single mom, I am. And I work three days a week and it's very difficult. So when I am going out to work, I have to pay childcare, of course. So somebody comes in for me, you know. So I earn very little by the time I'm finished with my three days out. You know, I hand everything over in childcare because I want to keep my job. Yeah, so do you, do you want to go into the actual figures there? Because I, I have well, them here in front of me, but I won't share them unless you're, you're comfortable not doing it. Well, it's very basic. Like, I'm not out there. I'm not a CEO of anything. Like, I'm just working a normal job. I get €13 Euro an hour and I give childcare 10. So I get €3 Euro an hour for my job. This okay, is so where we're at. That's not sustainable, obviously. Not at all. Not at all. But even more, like just the idea that we are, as I say, all these weeks into the school term and yeah. there's a 12-year-old child sitting at home day and out. Have you been offered alternative, uh, like, tutoring? I have, I have. Now, that the the National Council for Special Education, the lady I'm dealing with there, I got a a two-hour-a-week homeschooling offer, which I have turned down because it's not acceptable. And they've come back to me with nine hours a week homeschooling. So what would that entail? This would be a, a, a teacher coming into your home for I would, a few hours yeah. a day of, over, over the course of a week? Yeah, well, it's nine hours. That's what you get. And it's up to me now to find the tutor as well, I was told last week. So I've been ringing around trying to get tutors. But, you know, they're all taken now at this stage. Now, there's one lady I'm hoping is going to get back to me. Um, and she has some hours free. So we'll go from there. And then I would drop him and of course wait for him like while he's you know having his class with this lady oh so you don't he she won't come to the house you actually have to take him and wait i take him yeah yeah and again so that means you again can't work no that's exactly right but and again nine hours is not a full week in school obviously it's it's a very long way off it it's very long way off it and you know Alfie needs as many hours as he can get and i want to bring him to his full potential and that is just not appropriate that's not an education for any child and and even in a, if uh, set aside the education part of it, uh, like just the socialising part of school yeah. life, which is obviously yeah. important as well. Sure, it's massive and it's massive for Alfie, of course, and I want him to have that and he is missing out on all of that, getting to hang out with his peers and play football in the schoolyard and do what all kids do, you know, and he's missing out on all of that. Can, could he 
go. I know you said just a, a, at the start there that you don't think he would be able for mainstream. But would you would you mm-hmm. think about putting him into? Uh, would he be Would he be accepted in a mainstream class with you know with maybe SNA support? Sure, sure, and that has been offered, but there isn't any school again that can can do that in our area. I, I've tried many schools, and it's just not an option. It seems. I mean, Alfie, uh, academically, where he'd be going to a first year setting, and academically, Alfie is maybe third class at a push. You know, so it's going to be. I'm setting him up for a fall. Like he, you know, he's going to be disruptive in there. He's not able to kind of sit still and conform to his classroom situation. You know, so it it wouldn't be ideal for anybody. But, yeah, yeah, just can, can you maybe tell me a bit? And I know, obviously, I, you, you know, you want to be as positive as you can about Alfie's yeah. uh, abilities mm. and all that. But just the challenges that that he has. Sure. Well, I mean, realistically, like the challenges are. I mean, he's just not able. You know, the attention span is zilch, and you know, he just would not be able to sit for an hour class and then go to the next one. It's just not possible for Alfie. It's not. It's not how he rolls at all, Katie. Do you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's just not there. Like. And I know there's a, there's an, an issue about a, maybe a flight risk as well. Oh, there 100% is. Alfie is flight risk, yeah, absolutely. So he, they wouldn't be able to keep their eyes off him, you know, especially in the playground and stuff like that. He has, like, he has left playgrounds in schools before, you know. He is a flight risk, like. And what does he do? He just takes off? Oh, he just takes off, yeah. No fear, Katie. So he just <laughs> takes off, you know. You know, something else catches his eye and away he goes, you know. I have to say, Roar, you seem in remarkably good humour for somebody who's dealing with what I would feel would be a very stressful situation. Sure, it's fear stressful, but I mean, what can I do here? I'm in it. I, like, I didn't realise this was going on for parents until I tried to get a secondary school place for Alfie. I had no idea this was coming down the line. I had no idea. So really until, when did you really realise, OK, this, this we're now nearly in September... And yeah. there's nothing happening here. Was there was there a moment where you thought we're in real trouble here? I did, I did. And that was in June, leaving national school. I was like, no, I've been refused for every school now. We're really in trouble. And here's the summer holidays now. So there's no applying now, you know, for those few months. And mm-hmm. I, I realised then that I was in trouble, that I was like, oh, my God, we're not going to get a school this year at all. It's not looking that way. So I know that you have obviously gone gone to all lengths and contacted everybody. We have yeah. a response here uh, from uh, Josepha Madigan uh, because Lovely. yeah, because you spoke to Sean O'Friel, who'd be your local TD there. I did, I did. Um, and this came in. It's the October 11th. So this is just last week. The minister mm-hmm. responsible. This is uh, Josepha Madigan, minister with responsibility for special education and inclusion. Uh, yeah. So she talks about the budget. Uh, you know, she says her department's budget was substantially increased increased as part of budget 2023 by over 10%. She now has 2.6 billion euro to spend on special education because, of course, this was a big issue and blew up a year ago as well for, for other families. Yeah. And she says 600 new special classes were sanctioned at primary level and almost... 300 new special classes were sanctioned at post-primary level and five new special schools were established over the last three years. And she says that there are now a total of there are a total of 2,920 special classes sanctioned nationwide. Right. So that's just the general picture. Mm-hmm. And then she says that in Kildare, where you are, um, yeah. 11 new special classes will open in uh, for this school year, 23-24. Uh, and how many of those are post-primary? Five of them at, are at post-primary level. So that means there are 115 post-primary classes for special needs in Kildare. 
and she sure. says um, there'll be other expanded. But then she gets to Alfie and she says uh, at present Alfie is high on the waiting list at St. Francis Special School and the NCSC are hopeful for an appropriate placement soon. So are you taking any comfort from that Cora. Well, I'm not really, because I gave them that information that he was high on the list. But, I mean, nobody's going to drop out at this stage. So you can be high on the list, all right, but it's not going to happen for this academic year, you know. And do you know how far off the top of the list Alfie is? He's next on the list. Oh, OK. Well, then... For Portleash. OK. And is that would that be feasible for you? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But that's just, you know, that's one school, you know. But here we are in the year, so chances are the children aren't going to drop out through the year, you know. Yeah. So he is he is next on the list. But I mean, it doesn't make my situation any better. And I mean, you have to reapply then for all the other schools again. There is no kind of waiting list. You have to just go again, you know. And how long would it take you to get up to Portlaoise from where you are there? Um, well, I suppose 30, 35 minutes. OK, OK, so it's doable. Oh, not, it is not, doable. Not, not ideal, obviously, but, but doable. Oh, no, it's, per- yeah. I mean, it's perfect. It's yeah. totally doable. There's no problem with that. Like, but, I mean, but you just don't you think know, you just don't think another family are going to step aside and, and there's oh, going to be a place coming up. I, do, I don't see it. I don't see it happening for this year. I think it would have happened by now if it was going to happen. That's Cora talking to Katie Hannan on this afternoon's Live Line about her son Alfie, who has Down syndrome and is still without a school place as we approach the midterm break. It was 100 years ago today, that's if you're listening on Monday, that two brothers set up their new animation studio in Burbank, California. The 21-year-old Walt Disney and his brother Roy started what would become the Walt Disney Company on the 16th of October 1923. Now, of course, the company owns all the content. On this morning's 9 o'clock show, Oliver Callan was joined by Lyric FM's own Aideen Gormley to celebrate the centenary of the House of Mouse. This was yeah. always the thing with Disney. You think of it as for children, but it's not. It's for families. And this was Walt Disney's whole thing 100 years ago. I wanted to be a space for families to hang out. Same with the theme parks. I wanted to be a place where families can enjoy life together. So it's family entertainment. Yeah, it's an extraordinary story. Was he very wealthy when he started out? Do we know? No, I mean, they, they started off. It's kind of amazing when you look at Disney now to, as you say, these two brothers back back in, in 1923. Um, like he, he was interested in art. He was a commercial illustrator at the age of 18. He and the brother then started, you know, moved to California, said, let's let's give this a go. And 1928 was the game changer. That was the creation of Mickey Mouse himself. But they started with just those short cartoons. The the third short with Mickey Mouse was Steamboat Willie. This was the big one because it was the first with sound. And then this character was created and it was a really big deal. But Walt was always looking ahead. He knew that a feature film had to be the next thing. And that was 1937. He had all the illustrators working on it from 1934. He tripled the budget. Like it had to work. He, he, he's a great man for taking chances. Mm. But it did. It was a massive hit. And then Walt famously got, you know, the, the honorary Oscar for Snow White, which was the, you know, one properly sized Oscar and the seven miniature <laughs> ones presented to him by Shirley <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Temple. It so it was gorgeous. Yeah. Well, I think I didn't know, uh, I, I'd forgotten about him was that he was the original voice of Mickey Mouse. Such That's an right. iconic voice. Yeah, yeah. He was the original voice. And he was... I mean, we might talk about it over the next hour in terms of all of those voices he chose. He 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 knew about those voices. I mean, even Snow White, this extraordinary voice of Adriana Casalotti, this soprano, high, high voice. He chose them well and then they became more and more big names. You know, you spoke about the, the likes of Tom Hanks there. Uh, the big names came in there, but he, he auditioned, you know, all the time and he, he made sure that the voices were right for the characters. The work was unbelievable. Mm. Here's Walt Disney as Mickey Mouse, the now iconic sound of the mouse. Hurry up, Pluto. Come on. Here we go. 
<laughs> Beautifully high pitched. Yeah. So, because he was a, he was a heavy smoking kind of you know, moustache. You, you, you wonder where that voice came out of. Yeah. Uh, Snow White. So that was the first kind of Snow movie. White, the, the first, first Disney movie. Disney feature movie, length. The f- f- the, yeah, the first okay. full length. And again, though, you know, those beautiful songs. Someday my prince will come. I mean, again, the Disney princess has evolved over the years. You know, if you think of Snow White, she was. You know, cleaning up the house and cleaning up after seven <laughs> fellas who didn't clean up after themselves. There's a lot of housework you know, going on, A lot of it? housework yeah. and whistle while you work and all of those brilliant <laughs> songs. But it was a beautiful, beautiful start and hugely popular and a great start for Disney. So where did you find the um, the singer for in Snow White? It's this extraordinary singer, Adriana Castellotti. It, it was it was literally that he auditioned and he listened to different voices. And again, it's it's funny when you say the high pitched voice of Mickey Mouse. This high pitched voice she had, I think, is extraordinary, isn't it? it really yeah. is. I have a lovely time, and I love the yeah. uh, I love the. This is someday my prince will come. Yes, and I love the scratchy kind of dusty sound. It's gorgeous, isn't uh, and it? How yeah. long it's lasted. That's a grown woman. I know. There's no, there's no effect uh, on the voice. Absolutely beautiful, you know, and and just gorgeous songs in that. And the, he followed it up then with Pinocchio in, in 1940. And not creepy at all. Not creepy you. at all. <laughs> and has been made several times since, of course, more, very recently. But When You Wish Upon a Star comes from Pinocchio and that became, of course, the, the theme song. Yes. And those those days then were, were kind of tricky, Oliver, because war was breaking out. And so, mm. you know, there was a little bit of a halt to production, but Bambi came out, Dumbo came out. and then During a, the war years? Yeah, during yeah. the war years, during the, the early 40s. And then uh, the, the biggie then was actually Fantasia, which was this incredibly, um, I mean, I mean, wow project because he wanted to use several pieces of classical music with animation. So you're talking most famously The Sorcerer's Apprentice. We've little Mickey Mouse again as The Sorcerer's Apprentice. And he, he wanted to make Mickey Mouse cuter and more expressive. You know, he was constantly looking at this character. Right. But we had several pieces of classical music then. But really the comeback was, was 1950 and that was Cinderella. And this was the one that really made him money again because the war years, years were kind of tricky. So Cinderella, um, you know, again, Eileen Woods was the, the voice of Cinderella. He's Tin Pan Alley songwriters to bring us songs like Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo and A Dream Is A Wish Your Heart Makes and So This Is Love. So all those all those gorgeous songs and that was a, that was the big comeback then, 1950. That brings me back. It's real afternoon telly, isn't it? Isn't it? It's it's the matinee feel to it. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Such a gorgeous story. And, you know, so it's 1950 and Cinderella was big. And then into the 50s, we get the likes of Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians. And they're as old as that, the the Lady and the Tramp in the 50s. And then, you know, the the live action was then coming in, Treasure Island. Before you go to that, I mean, 101 Dalmatians. I know. What a gorgeous looking film. This is the thing, isn't The animation really, really beautiful. It's amazing. 
amazing, yeah. yeah. And I think the greatest Disney villain because Definitely, that's a, that's I totally a whole agree. other area of Disney, isn't it? Yes, the villains, the, the amazing... villains. Cruella de Vil, I think, still one of the scariest. She steals the show. Yeah. I think, do we have a, yes, we have a Cruella de Vil. I don't care how you kill the little beast, but do it! And do it now! <laughs> Listen, you idiots. I'll be back first thing in the morning. And the job better be done or I'll, I'll, I'll call the police. Do you understand? Ah, oh, amazing! Terrifying. She's a really cool car as well. <laughs> really cool car. How, yeah, come exactly. the, how come feminism doesn't explore the uh, the strength of these strong Disney movies? <laughs> or just because they're yeah. bad? Because kids wanted to be Cruella de Vil, yeah. without any of the puppy. Um, yeah, uh, puppy but I mean, the, the, stealing the, the, and hurting. The evil stepmother in Snow White. It started then, didn't it? I think yeah. Walt knew you had to have a good body, um, right up to Scar in in The Lion King. I mean, very very creepy baddies, no doubt about it. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. and uh, Ursula. The Little Mermaid, yes. one of the most popular. Yes, the evil well. sea witch. Maleficent uh, makes a, a, the early appearance. Maleficent the, with, the with Sleeping, Sleeping Beauty, Beauty. Yes. yeah, yeah, um, early, early, early hits as well. But you see, as many kids going around with Maleficent um, head, yeah, the headgear, the right. headgear as Mickey Mouse ears in Disneyland. <laughs> That's very, very I can true. testify yes. to having only been there this year. Well, of course, the Paris trips are either rugby fans or Disney fans, aren't they? For, for Paris, it's this <laughs> weird right, mix. Yeah. On if you're if you're flying Dublin right, to Paris, right. yeah. Some people might have done both, which Indeed. really interesting mix. Which are frontal uh, frontal lobes, I presume. As you were mentioning there, so he he was into the animation and the. 50s is post-war uh, he's flying along and he, he decides to take a swerve for the, with Disney Studios doesn't he? Yeah well he's in, in terms of the live action stuff that's all starting at Treasure Island is around the same time as, as Cinderella and we, we'll talk about Mary Poppins a little later on but you mentioned then of course Darby O'Gill and the Little People was yeah. about 1959 and um, you know a, f- a few Irish moments in there as, as well in yeah. fact. Aideen Gormley helping Oliver Callan celebrate 100 years of Disney this morning. Staying active is vital to our well-being, we're told, but what if you can't or won't get moving? What if you suffer from kinesiophobia? What if you can't pronounce kinesiophobia? Claire Byrne spoke to spinal surgeon Derek Cawley this morning about people who have an irrational fear of physical activity. So Derek, what is this thing? Hi Claire. So uh, kinesiophobia means fear of movement. Um, It's often considered to be somewhat irrational and is more associated with the personality traits of the person than the actual musculoskeletal injury that they're suffering from. And I guess it is in basic terms a worry that they have so why are they worried well they might be worried for generic reasons so for example if you hurt your back and you have pain and you're terrified of moving um, it may be because your neighbour or your cousin had a tumour in their back and they're terrified that this is what's going on and therefore if they move somehow that they may make it worse Um, it may be specific to the region of their body. So, for example, the classic one is if you have a heart attack or angina, you can get um, a pain into the left arm, um, whereas a disc, a slip disc in the neck can also give you pain into the left arm. Um, OK, so this is different then from people who might say to you, I have a back injury and it's painful for me to move. And you know that if they move, that pain will actually reduce. It's not that, is it, where you have to get through the pain barrier mm. in order to improve things for yourself. And uh, if a person 
hurts their back from moving, it almost sounds like it's counterintuitive to therefore tell them to move. Yeah. So they're terrified. Why would I do that? But invariably, it's because the movement pattern that they've had has led them into this problem in the first place. And therefore, the, the direction of recovery is different to the direction that they have come from. Um, for example, if a back uh, is now sore and the muscle muscle is spasming, it involves trying to stretch out that muscle, but probably strengthen other muscles and stretch out the muscle that's causing spasm. So therefore, for example, um, they, they're, they're looking for an education on that. They're looking for understanding on that. They're looking for something that puts them back in control of, what, of how they're moving. And that's multiple uh, levels then in terms of the psychological effect, the physiological effect, the physiotherapy effect. Um, so it's important that the healthcare professionals around them would recognise the different components of their movement and of the psychological concerns that they have about not moving. So you would need a multidisciplinary team then to treat this person? So that would be the standard approach, that's right. Um, what's that, what happens in this uh, Western world is things are over-medicalised and invariably people get an MRI scan. And that can... That can have good and bad effects, actually. So an MRI scan where uh, they finally realise I don't have cancer in my back, I can now get moving. That's a good placebo effect. Um, invariably, what actually happens, or I won't say invariably, but certainly the majority of time uh, in patients that would come looking for a spinal appointment is the nocebo effect. And that's where, of course, they get read out in, 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 in detail features that are on their back that are seen are on MRI scan that are essentially normal variants. They're not actually pathological. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong. And in fact, it's been proven that the nocebo effect is um, is uh, is evident in more than just a psychological behaviour that a, cebo, a nocebo effect can have effects on the person's stress levels, their ability to function, their ability, uh, their levels of pain, even three months after the news that was broken to them. So, mm-hmm. so, uh, so, it, so th- that's important to recognise. But again, what are we doing? We're 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 looking at the psychological component of this, and yeah. that's why it's so important. So, as we have more access to medical information now online, do you see that this condition is increasing? So that's a really good point. I would say the opposite. I would say the fa- sorry, <laughs> yes, I agree. It's the fact that we have so much more information online spooks us that bit more about what this could be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That is true. Um, so the stress level, again, in modern life uh, is, again, yet a component of, of a very much a, a movement-related condition. So then more people might be looking for MRIs, which takes me back to another story we're talking about on the programme this morning, the pressures on the on the health service. Yeah, it's funny because uh, the the MRI waiting times within the public system are chock-a-block several months. And then there was a funding initiative to allow funding, uh, for example, the Winter Initiative allowed funding in private facilities to MRI scans, to do private MRI scans funded by public money. What happened? They're now at capacity as well because there's this there's this notion that everybody that has back pain needs an MRI scan and that's not true. Mm-hmm. They need a physio, a physical therapist, they need somebody to look at their movement. So Yeah, but you know when you have a back problem and uh, you know you you're told well it's just movement that you need to do or it's just this specific uh, set of exercises. Yeah. You go, "Well, are you sure there's nothing wrong?" So that's that's, that's why people want the MRI. That is true. So I suppose the the, the st- and I say this day in, day out, that the, the information lies in that patient's story. That'll tell me what their pain is. That'll tell me what their diagnosis is. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I have a rip-roaring pain down my leg um, after lifting something out of the boot of the car, it's probably a slip disc. That will probably settle down. 
And if it doesn't, in the 10 to 15% cases in four or five, six weeks, then sure, an MRI scan is, is, is recommended. But what happens is that day one or day two, where a person has a bad back, they're looking for an MRI scan. Whereas in actual fact, they should be looking for mm-hmm. uh, a physiotherapist. And I still think that a GP or a physiotherapist or somebody who's, who, who, who knows wh- what uh, the features are is, is confidently able to tell this person it's most likely to be X or Y, you know. Um, and, and frequently uh, I see the opposite. I see an MRI scan giving an incomplete result where a person thinks that because they have some kind of disc bulge in their back, that this is the explanation for their pain. Or worse, where they have a duodenal ulcer or a kidney stone, which can also manifest as back pain, that that's missed because the the airtime is taken up by whatever feature is on their MRI scan, which when in actual fact, that's just a feature of their ageing, God forbid, or, or, or aspects of their back as we get older. Yeah, just going back to this um, particular phobia that we're talking about this yeah. morning, like if somebody's listening to this and wondering, do I have this condition? Does my partner have it? Or maybe I'm just a bit lazy. Like, how, how do you make the distinction? How do you diagnose this? So the uh, it's 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 evident in some degree, I would say, in everybody. OK, because naturally we're programmed to not injure something that's already injured. Yeah, you want to protect it, don't yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. So it's where that becomes an overriding feature, where a person is terrified to do anything. And it is... For example, Tampa University developed a questionnaire on identifying features within that person's presentation that um, that would make them more likely to have kinesiophobia. And again, what does it come down to? It comes down to evidence of stress, evidence of anxiety, evidence of irrational worry, predominating factors that influence how they think about their back as opposed to just embracing uh, getting moving. OK, so I'm just wondering, you know, where are the parameters of this? Like, would you have people who say, I don't mind going for a walk, I'll walk all day if you mm. want me to, but I can't live lift weights sure I can't is that kinesiophobia I can't lift weights because I my shoulder is going to be sore afterwards yeah and and people cope in different ways so you have your adaptive copers who say I can do most things but I can't do X and that's fine and then you have your endurance copers who blast through the day and then collapse at the end or get a nervous breakdown or whatever Um, and then you have your maladaptive copers who need a special pillow special chair special mattress can't lift more than 3.78 kilograms at work and there's there's all of these factors their life is so dictated by their their terror of moving their back and they need reassurance they need healthcare they need access to physiotherapy they need they need a self they need a good understanding of the whole thing and that helps them to get back in the center of that circle in terms of self empowerment mm-hmm. and taking responsibility spinal surgeon Derek Cawley talking about the unusual condition known as kinesiophobia with Claire Byrne this morning Now, as we all know, Ray Darcy played a bit of rugby in his day. So who better to discuss Ireland's painful exit from the Rugby World Cup on Saturday than the bold Ray and a certain former Irish international. Shane Bourne, did you cry? (laughs) I certainly wasn't very happy, put it that way. Uh, Devastating for the guys. Um, You know, real gut-wrenching stuff when you see the, the way they felt afterwards. For there to be... Okay, look, they did... Fantastic to get themselves back twice into position of challenging to win the game. And, um, you know, from being way behind. And, you know, amazing uh, guts to do that. But in overall, it was 
unfortunately, probably our loosest, our, our least uh, precise performance in the World Cup. And mm. it just happened to be at this game. We didn't settle. Um, not that it would have had much. I don't know if the effect in the game would have been huge. But Wayne Barnes, I thought, didn't make a lot the of good referee, calls. Particularly, yeah, yeah. particularly at the start of the game, I thought it... it two quick penalties in a row and we were down defender line and yeah. I, I just thought that that put Ireland on the back foot and we never seemed to settle into the game at all. We were always chasing. Every single moment of the game just seemed to be chasing and um, it really had effect. And the one thing Wayne Barnes did do was he took away the scrum. We were stronger in the scrum and the calls he made on Andrew Porter and you saw Andrew Porter's reaction to it, mm. um, he got them completely wrong. Absolutely, completely wrong. Uh, from you know everything that I know about front row play, they were under pressure. And when when the tight head's under pressure, he goes moves in to protect himself, and the loose head obviously has to follow. And that's what happened. And Wayne Barnes called them wrong twice, so which is fine margins in yeah, in a yeah. game like that. Uh, and uh, Sexton. Johnny Sexton yeah. referring there that they got over the line in the 72nd minute yeah. uh, and Jordy Barrett uh, was between the ball and the ground. Um, yeah, yeah. Dan Sheen getting over, yeah, getting over, just being held up, absolutely. Uh, heartbreaking stuff, you know, that you to get right to that point and, and that's what it is. It is literally just the smallest, smallest thing. In it. Like I was talking to you last week and, and you know, I said to you, for this to happen, uh, things have to go a little bit wrong for Ireland and th New Zealand have to play the best game and that's what that they've played a long time. And that's exactly <laughs> what happened. New Zealand were oh, outstanding. Yeah. They were absolutely outstanding. I haven't seen them play like that in a long, long time. And unfortunately, it timed it right for a game against us that we weren't settled in. The amount of times that, you know, unforced errors, dropped balls. Like, we hadn't, there hadn't been any sign of that at all in the World Cup. Yeah, but but I suppose you could argue that New Zealand made that happen. Um, so, so that final five minutes and 17 seconds, 37 phases, we've been there before against France and we all we only needed a drop goal and Johnny Sexton obliged that, that amazing historic win uh, that time. Uh, we needed yeah. a try this time. And of course, New Zealand had to stand back off us because they didn't want to give away a penalty. Uh, and maybe that's a contributory factor to why it went on so long. Um, were you... Were you hopeful? <laughs> you know, did you think we could do it at that stage? It was just too late. Well, it would have taken something that hadn't happened throughout the game. It would have taken a, a mistake by New Zealand mm. for it to happen. Um, you know, the guys, like you wouldn't say they were dead in their feet. They were still yes, absolutely yeah, yeah. working so hard to make it happen. But um, they're just, New Zealand had got the number on us at that stage and they just had to sit back, make, keep the aggression up, make your tackles. And unfortunately, that's what happened. And, um, you know, the turnover just happened then after that amount of phases is just, it's so hard for to see because, look, arguably the best Irish team we've produced. And again, this quarterfinal hoodoo, we just yeah. can't get through. Look, we could always debate. We've been talking about how silly the, the draw was. It's absolute lunacy the way it was. But... It's still a quarterfinal knockout. Okay. Devastating stuff. Now, it looks nearly definite now, unless there's a huge upset, that the All Blacks are going to meet South Africa in the final. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I was looking at the South African-France game last night. Their 
animals. Like they are, like that's it's going to be a big game, a repeat of the last World Cup final. Uh, yeah. But if South, and this is just pub talking away, but if, if South Africa managed to beat the All Blacks, we were the only, we would be the only team that have beaten South <laughs> Africa. That, that That's going to be a, a bitter pill are to you, swallow. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> we cling to that one. <laughs> well, here's the, other, here's the other thing. Johnny Sexton, Shane. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you want to say about him? Listen, he's just being the way he has been, he's been an inspiration for Irish rugby for a long, long time. And um, for him to be able to maintain his standards for so long is, is was just fantastic. Like at no point in in the this World Cup did anyone ever think, ah, he looks like a 38-year-old, yeah. he's looking a bit jaded. Nothing. He was... Leading the charge, getting fully involved, even after the whistle, the passion still showing on him. And, um, you know, you couldn't ask for anything more. From out-halves are always leaders, but he as well, obviously, was the captain. And, um, you know, everything you wanted from an out-half was contained within Johnny Sexton. He led Ireland for, you know, a long, long time. And we were proud to have him there, and it'll be... It'll be big shoes to fill. We have plenty of contenders for the crown, but I think it'll be uh, an even longer time before we get somebody of his ilk. Shane Byrne talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon about Ireland's bitterly disappointing defeat at the hands of the All Blacks in the Rugby World Cup. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, regular Today with Claire Byrne parenting expert and clinical child psychologist David Coleman was on hand this morning to talk about some challenges parents can face with their kids. Claire began the session by reading an email from a parent whose child has anxiety around germs. My daughter was diagnosed with celiac disease recently. The news came with its own challenges. She's already a very sensitive child and the diagnosis has brought on lots of anxiety which we're working through. She recently started school. In the last week has developed anxiety and fears around germs. She's refusing to use the toilet in the school because of a fear of germs getting on her clothes. Is this something to be concerned about or is it simply down to a transition from preschool to big school? It's a very distressing situation to watch. So what do you say? Yeah, I'm sure it is. She's only five as well so she's very young and I think actually if the family track it back and uh, they're saying that since she was diagnosed with the celiac disease she has become more anxious chances are that the fear of germs now is just an outward expression of that core anxiety perhaps about her health about whether she's actually okay because she mightn't fully understand what celiac disease is I'm sure it was big enough news in the family because it's involved I'm sure a whole change of diet and Mm -hmm. all sorts of things so um, so she may not have a full understanding of that and it might be her uncertainty about what that really means for her she's only five that's actually then as I say being expressed in this this particular fear of germs so it's more likely some yeah deeper rooted anxieties and worries about her health than what celiac disease means for her so I would suggest that's where they start talking a lot about the celiac disease trying to normalize it as much as possible trying to normalize the new diet as much as possible letting her know that this has been a big deal and yet she's actually okay and that she's safe and that her health is going to continue to be okay and that as a family they can mind her well And I think what that does then is it just brings down some of those underlying anxieties and then perhaps you can uh, reassure her about some of the specific kind of germ fears that she has because again, that's kind of health related, that's kind of sickness related and and that's why I think it's all connected back to the celiac disease. Okay, but the transition into school from preschool is probably a little bit stressful anyway, isn't it? I mean, we've all seen that in in our own lives with our children. For sure, and I'd say... 
80% of parents who start their child in uh, in school, even if they've been through preschool, will still say that they notice a difference for their child and that lots of children will suddenly show separation anxiety where they were very comfortable and happy in preschool and they go into big school and it's suddenly such a bigger deal. New systems, new teachers, new environment, the whole lot is all. So again, provides so much or provokes so much uncertainty for kids that it gets expressed out as, you know, I don't want to leave you. I want to be with my point of safety, my mom or my dad or yeah. whoever's bringing me. And so separation anxiety, I guess, is probably more common as a way of of experiencing that kind of, you know, worries about the transition. And so, I mean, she's six weeks in and it's only in the last week as well or that she's actually started to have these kind of germ things. So I'm not sure that that's necessarily about the transition. It seems like that might be just about something. Who knows? Somebody could have just said something and it's like, oh, that's the thing now, you know, because you could get sick. Did Somebody may, may have come out and the teacher noticed that they hadn't washed their hands after going to the bathroom or something. And the teacher makes a comment and suddenly she's one of those children who picks up and goes, oh, my God, this is really dangerous now. And so it becomes a bigger deal for her than it might for another child. Okay. Well, let's move on to the next one now. We're going up in the age categories to a first year student. So our son started secondary school in September and I'm concerned about his phone use. He's making lots of friends. He seems to enjoy school, but he's on Snapchat and uses his phone a lot. How can we create boundaries without him missing out on contact with his friends from every parent of teenagers in Ireland? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. It is so difficult. And yet, you know, I think that mom or dad, whoever's texted in or emailed in, is absolutely right. They do have to set some kind of limits because he's only in first year. He's only 13. And if they don't set the limits early, they're going to really struggle by the time he's 14, 15. And and so that's the time when they should be loosening them out as opposed to feeling like they have to kind of tighten them back. So I think it's okay for them to have limits, particularly around bedtimes uh, with with a 13-year-old. And so the likelihood is that there will be kids in his class who don't have any kind of restriction, who will be on their phones, will be sending snaps at 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. Um, and so what you want to do is make sure that your son is just aware that that's not the way it is in our house. And so if his bedtime is, say, for example, around 10 o'clock, that he's giving up his phone at about half nine or at 10 o'clock, whichever, you know, if they need to push it to 10 o'clock to give up the phone, but that he doesn't have his phone going to bed, his phone is kept downstairs, he doesn't have the phone in the bedroom. And so that, I think, is the first way to stop it because it's a real late night texting. I think that's really problematic for kids because yeah, they're so was, exhausted anyway. Someone was telling me about this thing they have on um, Snapchat, chains, and you can't break the chain. So you can send a picture of your shoe or a wall or something as long as you're not breaking the chain of yeah. communication. And that can be going on until one or two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, and I mean, so Chains is obviously a new version of Streaks and Streaks was where you had to do a daily sending, mm-hmm. continuing a message. Maybe that is message. what it's called. Now, I'm not, we're not at yeah. that stage in my house. So okay. Maybe that is what it's called. <laughs> well, Streaks are what I'd be more familiar with, um, which is that, um, you know, every day you have to send and receive a, a snap from a particular person. And so that gets recorded. And so Streaks can last for like thir- 300, 400 days. And then if it gets broken, it's big trauma, you know, that this kind of connection okay. was broken. Um, but I mean, Chains could be a brand new thing. And we're only just in discovering it. And so, um, and, and maybe it is about the continuation of a conversation over a period of time. But but it's, yeah, I, I, I think it's just though about parents standing up and going, actually, you know, the, the, the cost in terms of your social connection is actually, you know, well worth the benefit of you getting a proper night's sleep. Yeah. And then other times, you know, if he needs to get homework done and he's too distracted, again, he needs to not have his phone. Or you need to have a facility. And, and I think Family Link on Google, Google Family Link is one of the 
the best ways that parents can actually have a lot of digital control over their child's device. If their child's phone is connected via um, Google Family Link, I think it is, um, then the parents can actually literally switch off almost every app on the phone so that the phone becomes simply uh, receiving and, okay. and making telephone calls. That's a good idea. I think I told you before about someone I know using a safe for the phone. Physically down. locking it away. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, so, so one way or another, we have to have a for if we want to set a limit for our child in, in with regard to their phone use, we have to have a way to enforce that limit. Uh, you know, having a limit that you can't enforce is not worth having a limit at all. Yeah. So so whether that be a physical limit, but like locking it away or a, a digital limit with something like Family Link, assuming they allow that software to be on their phone and they don't have some workaround, which a lot of kids will find. Of course they will. Absolutely. Yeah. They're expert at it. Right. Let's um, go to this child a parent has been in touch about a child who only has one friend. My daughter attends a mixed primary school. She only has one friend in her class. Neither appear to mix with any of the other children. She's so influenced by this other girl and vice versa and not always in a good way. I try to encourage her to mix a bit more and invite other girls on play dates, but to no avail. Should I leave her alone and maybe in time this might sort itself out? Yeah. Did you say she's only eight? I didn't get, did, an age, did get an age, actually. No, it didn't Sounds get like an age. Sounds like primary school anyway. It is primary school, but I don't know at yeah, what stage okay. of primary school. I, I think it's okay to just let her daughter be as she is. The, the big danger when you have a friend who you are that connected to and don't seem to have a broader range is if that friend falls out with you, then you're left friendless for a period of time. And I suppose that's, I think, what most parents will try to guard against. And yet having a really good close friend is fine as long as the friend is always there <clears throat> and you're happy enough, you know, and, and, and she just may not feel that she needs to be particularly close to other other kids. The mom sounds like she's doing lots of the right things, inviting other kids around anyway, trying to encourage other friendships. If she's gone to do any kind of sports again, maybe making sure that she hangs out with other children as well. And But you can, ultimately you can't choose or decide or force your child to be friends with anyone. Mm-hmm. So you can't choose our friends for them. So I, I think ultimately she has to kind of just go with where her child is at um, with regard to the friends. But I, I think it's fine to try and encourage them. But just I wouldn't stress over it if, if the encouragement is not bearing fruit. OK. Claire Byrne discussing listeners' concerns about their children this morning with parenting expert and clinical child psychologist David Coleman. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shuridon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. And I'll be back with some more Playback Daily tomorrow. Until then, thanks for listening and good luck.